the fall semester of my senior year of college, uh, Tara and I had been married for only a couple of weeks, and I was sitting in a chapel service. And when you first get married, if you're like me and you're not used to wearing a ring or wearing jewelry, you feel it all the time. It's new, it's different, and so you know when you have it and you know when you don't. After years, you just kind of get used to it. So I'm sitting in chapel service, and I clasp my hands like this, and I don't feel my ring. And immediately, I get a pit in my stomach. My heart starts racing. I start sweating, and I'm thinking, where in the world is my wedding ring? I get up in the middle of chapel, and I just leave, and I start retracing my steps. Where could it be? Where was the last time that I had it? Well, the evening before, we had had an intramural flag football game, and I knew that I had taken the ring off for uh, that game, and I had placed it in my backpack in a little pocket. So I go back to where we lived. I look through my backpack. It's not in there. Man, I start praying, God, would you please help me show me where the wedding ring is? And so I go back to the field where we played, and I just start walking up and down the field. I'm looking at every square inch of grass, praying, God, please, this is not a good start to my marriage. Uh, you know how important this ring is. Please, would you help me find it? And so I'm searching, I'm searching. I'm up there for over an hour. I'm looking. I can't find it anywhere. Eventually, I get to the edge, and I'm about ready to give up. And I stop, and I pray some more, and I said, Lord, would you please, please just show me where this wedding ring is? And I, I probably even start bargaining with God. I probably tell him, God, I will do this, I will do this, if you would just show me where it is. I finish my prayer. I look down, and there at my feet is the wedding ring. It had been there all night long, and I just happened to stumble right upon it. And God answered my prayer in a very powerful, in a very clear, in a very dramatic way. But that hasn't always been my experience. And my guess is that hasn't always been your experience when you pray as well. You hear the story of a preacher's young daughter who always noticed that her dad would pause and bow his head for a moment before he went up to preach. And one day she asked him why. He said, honey, I'm asking the Lord to help me preach a good sermon. To which she replied, then how come he doesn't do it? And while many of us can point to times where God has answered our prayer in dramatic ways, if you're anything like me, I bet there's been times where you've prayed and prayed and prayed and you haven't got what you asked for. And so today, as we wrap up our study in the book of James, we're looking at what James says about prayer. And as we study this passage together, here's a quote that I want us to keep in mind. It's from a great preacher named E.M. Bounds. He says, four things let us ever keep in mind. God hears prayer. God heeds prayer, God answers prayer, and God delivers by prayer. If you were with us last week, you'll remember that James instructed the Christians he was writing to to be patient in their suffering, to endure the hardships they were going through. He doesn't promise them that their situation is immediately going to get better. He doesn't give them reasons or answers for why they're experiencing hardship and difficulty. In fact, he appeals to the example of Job, a man who was persistent in the face of suffering. And for 40 chapters, Job asked questions. And for the most part, 
His questions go unanswered. And here, James acknowledges that sometimes our trials go unresolved. But that doesn't mean that we live defeated or give up. In fact, we're told the opposite. James tells us to pray and to keep bringing each other back to the truth. We see this in James chapter 5, beginning in verse 13. Would you please stand as we read God's word together? This is how the letter ends. Is anyone among you in trouble? Let them pray. Is anyone happy? Let them sing songs of praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let them call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise them up. If they have sinned, they will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Elijah was a human being, even as we are. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. Again, he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crop. My brothers and sisters, if one of you should wander from the truth, and someone should bring that person back, remember this. Whoever turns a sinner from the air of their way will save them from death and cover over a multitude of sins. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. Of all of the resources that Christians have at their disposal, I believe that prayer is the most misunderstood and underutilized. I think most of us are confused about what prayer really is. What is prayer? Is prayer like making a Christmas list? Is it just telling God all the things that you want from Him? Is it kind of like a a spiritual vending machine where we put our coins in, we put our prayers in, and then out comes what we've asked for? Is, Is that what prayer is? Is prayer just well wishes? I think that's popular in our society today, is people will say, well, you're in my thoughts and prayers. Is that all that prayer is? Is prayer just thinking about someone? If that's the case, then it's no wonder why many people don't pray, because just thinking about something doesn't change anything. Is prayer like a speech, where you get up and you say what you have to say, and then you sit down? Or is it something more than that? Is prayer a, a very structured ritual where there are certain ways and times that you pray? I mean, Muslims, they pray five times a day, all facing towards Mecca. Is, is that how we are to pray? See, I believe the problem with most people's understanding of prayer isn't that it's totally wrong. It's that it's not completely right. The simplest definition I've heard of prayer is talking with God. And I think that can be a helpful definition as long as we understand it to mean talking with God and not talking to God. Let me submit to you a definition for prayer. Prayer is the conversation that connects us with God, shaping our hearts to His. Prayer is a gift that God has given us to communicate with Him directly. 
It's not just about asking for things or, or seeking help in times of trouble, although that is certainly a part of prayer. Prayer is about developing our relationship with our Creator. It's expressing our love, our gratitude, our adoration for Him. It's aligning our will with His. When we pray, we're not just talking to God, we're listening to Him. We're seeking His guidance. We're seeking His wisdom. We're seeking His peace. So, with that understanding of prayer, let's look at what James says. First, he tells us when to pray. When should we pray? In verse 13, James says, pray in times of trouble. When you're facing difficulty, pray. Now, I think the temptation we face is that when we're in trouble, when we're facing hardships, that means that God doesn't care. Or that means that God doesn't know. Or, or that means that God is unable to help. And so we pray less. James says the opposite. Pray more. He then goes on to say, pray in times of happiness. When, when things are going well, praise God. And this is a very different temptation, isn't it? When everything is good, when everyone in the house is healthy, the marriage is good, the kids are successful, there, there's money in the bank, it's easy for us to get complacent and we pray less. James says the opposite. Pray more. He then says, pray in times of sickness. And when we are weak and sick, it's easy to feel defeated. But weakness makes us feel hopeless, as if there's nothing to do. James says the opposite. There is something to do. Pray. In other words, pray in all circumstances. At all times, in every way, pray. There is a right time to pray, and it's now. 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 16 through 18 says, Rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances. Ephesians 6, verse 18 says, And pray in the Spirit on all occasions, with all kinds of prayers and requests. Church, I will tell you, prayer is always the right course of action for whatever you're going through in life. James tells us when to pray in all circumstances. Then he shares with us how to pray. How should we pray? He tells us to pray in the name of the Lord. Pray in the name of the Lord. Have you ever wondered why when we pray, we pray in Jesus' name? In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Why, why do we do that? When we pray in the name of the Lord, we're calling upon His authority. It signifies we're, we are acknowledging Jesus as our Lord and Savior. We are acknowledging His sovereignty and His Lordship over all things. By praying in Jesus' name, we are expressing our dependence on Him for healing and restoration. We are saying, Lord, we're praying in Your name because You have the power, You have the control, I don't. We pray in the name of the Lord, then James says, pray in faith. When we pray, we must pray with complete trust and confidence in God. Now, this faith is not merely believing that God exists. It is a faith that has absolute trust in His power, His wisdom, 
and His love for us. The power of our prayer is not in the words that we say, but in the faith that accompanies the words we say. It's the kind of faith that, that moves mountains, according to Jesus in Matthew seventeen twenty. It is a belief that, that God hears us when we pray, and He will answer according to His will. It is not a passive acceptance of our circumstances. Rather, it is an active trust in God's goodness and sovereignty. And then James says, how should we pray? We pray for each other. We ought to have other people praying for us. And I think sometimes we we hesitate with this. We don't ask other people to pray for us because we don't want to inconvenience people. We don't want to feel like we're, we're bothering someone. But we think, well, I know there, there are bigger things going on that other people are praying for than what I'm going through, so, so I'm just not going to ask anybody to, to pray for me. Listen, church, when you don't ask someone to pray for you, you are robbing them of an opportunity to obey God. You, you, you are robbing them of an opportunity to intercede on your behalf. I know as a pastor... One of the greatest honors and privileges I have, and one of the greatest honors our elders have, is to pray for our congregation. It is not a bother. It is not an inconvenience. Who is praying for you? Who is consistently, regularly praying for you? For years, uh, I led a small group ministry, and when I was training small group leaders, I would always encourage small group leaders to make sure that they created space and time in their groups for prayer. I said, I would much rather you cut your discussion time short so that you can make time for prayer instead of having a long conversation and then just just treating prayer as an afterthought. Why? Because prayer matters. But even more than that, I said, this may be the only time. This may be the only setting where people in your group actively have other people specifically praying for them. And everyone, every single one of us, needs to have others praying for us. You have others pray for you, but also you need to be praying for others. People praying for you, you praying for others. This is what it means to be a part of the church, the body of Christ. We are a community where we are bearing each other's burdens. And then James adds something. He says, confess your sins to each other. Now, most of us, we understand the importance of confessing our sins to God, but we hesitate to confess our sins to each other. It's uncomfortable. We think it sounds a little too catholic But James says there is healing in confession. In their best-selling book, Made to Stick, Dan and Chip Heath, they tell the story of a doctor who was trying to get his colleagues to practice proper hand-washing techniques. They talk about Dr. Leon Bender, who became frustrated when he took a South Seas cruise and observed that the crew was more diligent about handwashing than the staff at his own hospital. Frequent handwashing by doctors and nurses is one of the best ways to prevent patient infection. And studies estimate that thousands of patients die every year from preventable bacterial infections. Bender and his colleagues tried a variety of techniques to encourage hand washing. But the staff's compliance with regulations was stuck around 80%. Medical standards required a minimum of 90%. 
and the hospital was due for an inspection from the accrediting board. They had to do better. One day, a committee of 20 doctors and administrators were taken by surprise when after lunch, the hospital's infectious disease doctor asked them to press their hands into a sterile Petri dish. The Petri dishes were then sent to the lab to be analyzed and photographed. The photos revealed what wasn't visible to the naked eye. The doctor's hands were covered in gobs of bacteria. Imagine being one of the doctors and realizing that your own hands, the same hands that would examine a patient later in the day, not to mention the same hands you just used to eat a turkey sandwich, were harboring an army of micro, microorganisms. It was revolting. One of the filthiest images in the entire portfolio was made into a screensaver for the hospital's network of computers ensuring that everyone on staff could share in the horror. Suddenly, hand hygiene compliance rose to nearly 100%, and it stayed there. The Heath brothers conclude that we usually won't change our behavior until we see how we contribute to the problems in our world and in our relationships. And that's really what confession is. Confession is acknowledging, I played a part. I played a part in this conflict. I have had sin in my life that has damaged this relationship, and I am confessing it. And oftentimes we're quick to say, but, but, but what, what about what they did? But, but, but they did something wrong too. Confession brings healing to your soul. James tells us when to pray. He tells us how to pray. Third, he tells us why we pray. Why pray? He tells us that prayer is powerful. The power of prayer lies in the one to whom we are praying to. God is all-powerful, all-knowing, all-loving. He has the power to move mountains, to heal the sick, to raise the dead, to perform miracles. The power of prayer is not in the words that we say or how eloquently we say them. It's not about the length of our prayers. It's not about the number of people we pray for. When we pray, we are tapping into God's power. We're acknowledging our dependence on Him. We're expressing our trust in His ability to provide for our needs and to work in our lives according to His perfect will. Which is why James says in verse 16, the power of a righteous person is powerful and effective. It's not because the person praying is powerful, but because God is. Our righteousness does not come from ourselves, it comes from Christ. And when we pray in faith, we are made righteous in God's sight. When we pray in faith, our prayers are powerful and effective. Maybe we can say it this way. When we pray earnestly and expectantly, we pray effectively. When we pray earnestly and expectantly, we pray effectively. How do we know this? James says the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well, and the Lord will raise them up. Prayer brings healing. The Greek word for made well is sotse, and it can refer to physical healing. It can refer to spiritual healing. See, sometimes our healing is physical. Sometimes it's spiritual. 
Sometimes it's mental. Sometimes it's emotional. But the point is that prayer is powerful. Because prayer moves God. Prayer moves God. Pastor Erwin McManus shares the story of how when he was ministering at a congregation in South Dallas, his small church began to grow. They were looking for a place to build a larger church building, and the leadership spotted an acre of land for sale. Given its location near downtown Dallas, it seemed strange that this property was available. Excited at their good fortune, this small group of people, many of whom were on welfare, began to pray that the site would soon be theirs. Eventually, they were able to purchase the property after receiving financial help from an association of churches. As the congregation began the process of obtaining building permits, they discovered that the property had been declared unbuildable. The acre of land in a prime location was nothing more than a worthless landfill. McManus grieved over this waste of precious time and money. In his book, An Unstoppable Force, he writes, We had bought an acre of garbage. Several core samples were taken. From what I understood, there were at least 25 feet deep of nothing but trash. All I could do was ask our congregation to pray with me and believe that God was with us and that he would take even the worst of human mistakes and perform the greatest miracle. After months of prayer, a woman in the congregation told McManus that since they had asked God to turn the land into something useful, surely it it had been taken care of. Feeling God's confirmation of her words, McManus asked for more core samples to be taken. This time, the researchers found soil. McManus writes, how did this happen? Was it because the core sample was in a different part of the land? Or could it be that God had actually performed a miracle and changed the landfill to good land? What I do know is the same realtor who sold the property to me came back and offered me three times the amount he had sold it for once he heard the clearance to build had actually come through. What I do know is that the previous landowners couldn't build on the property, but we could. What I do know is that we were told the property was worthless and unusable. What I can't tell you is what happened beneath the ground at 2815 South Irve Street. All I can tell you is what I know. And that is that God took my failure and performed a miracle. And today, Cornerstone Church worships on that acre of land and a sanctuary built by our own hands. Prayer moves God. But prayer also moves me. Charles Spurgeon says, prayer moves the arm that moves the world. What what have you stopped praying for? What have you given up on that you need to continually bring before the Lord in faith? What what, what have you just kind of cast to the side that, that, that God wants you to continually bring before prayer? Because prayer moves God, but prayer also moves me. The power of prayer is seen in its ability to change us. As we spend time in God's presence, we are transformed. Our hearts are softened. Our minds are renewed. Our spirits are strengthened. We begin to see things from God's perspective and desire what He desires. We become more like Jesus. 
which is God's ultimate goal for us. You see, prayer is not a tool for manipulation. It is the conduit of transformation. Prayer is the vehicle through which we are changed. Philip Yancey said, I have learned to see prayer not as my way of establishing God's will, but as a way of becoming involved in God's will. Prayer is not us telling God what to do, but it's about aligning ourselves with what He is already doing. So we have seen James tell us when to pray. He's told us how to pray. He's told us why we should pray. So how can we take what we understand about prayer and put it into practice? I want to offer you a few next steps to make prayer a part of your life each and every day. First, start praying today and keep on praying. You know, prayer is easier than we think. We want to think that that prayer is complicated and complex, that it's too high or holy for us, because that gives us an excuse for not doing it. This is false humility. All of us can pray, even the most sinful, shallow, and silly among us. You don't have to master some mystical method. You don't have to master a method at all. Can you talk to a friend? Then you can talk to God. For He is our friend. And that is what prayer is. The single most important advice about prayer is one word. Start start. God makes it easy. Just do it. God also makes it easy to progress in prayer. For it gradually becomes more natural and more delightful as you pray. The the more you pray, the more comfortable you get in praying. The more you pray, the more you desire to spend time in prayer. Start praying and keep on praying. Second, confess your sins. Confession requires humility. It requires you setting aside your ego and your pride. It requires that you care less about your reputation than you do about finding freedom and healing. It's been said before that people won't change until the pain of staying the same is greater than the pain of change. See, the the sin that you're holding on to is making you miserable. And it doesn't have to be that way. Confession is hard. But unconfessed sin is crushing you. So find a trusted person. Vulnerability is difficult. You don't want to go to some random person who is not spiritually or emotionally mature enough to handle it. But find a godly person who will love you and support you. And confess your sin. Third, Pray for your one and pursue your one. Pray for your one. The person in your life that you love who does not have a relationship with Jesus that you want to see come to faith. This could be a family member. It could be a friend. It could be a co-worker or a neighbor. And start to put feet to your faith. This is how James ends the letter. My brothers and sisters, If one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring that person back, remember this. Whoever turns a sinner from the air of their way will save them from death and cover over a multitude of sins. After talking about when to pray, 
how to pray and why to pray, James closes the letter by reminding us that prayer is active, not passive. We are called to pray and we are called to go. We pray for our one and we pursue our one. What would this church look like? What would your life look like? What would our community look like if we believed and lived out this passage? If we prayed earnestly and expectantly, what might God do? If we believe that prayer is powerful and effective, what would happen? I think we would spend less time complaining and more time praying. I think we would have less fear and anxiety because we would take all things to God. I think we would have more joy in our lives because we would spend our time thanking and praising God. What would it look like if we confessed our sins to God and to each other? If we believe that that healing comes not when we hide and cover, but when we confess and share? I think there would be freedom. I think there would be less guilt and shame. If we really believed that people were lost without Christ, how would that change how we love others? How we pray for others? How we share the gospel with others? I think we would take more risks for the kingdom. I think we would spend less time worrying about what other people think and more time concerned about what God thinks. I think we would see everyone as image bearers of God whom Christ died for. I think we would stop comparing ourselves to one another. I think we would be bold in our faith. So, Bachelor Creek, let us be a church that prays continually, that prays in faith, that, that prays for each other because prayer is powerful. It moves God and it moves us. Lord, you are full of grace and mercy. God, your word tells us that you forgive our sins as far as the east is from the west. And there's nothing more miserable than a person stuck in their own sin. And there's nothing more free than confessing our sin and knowing that it is completely forgiven. God, I pray that we would develop rich, deep lives of prayer where we share with you, but we also listen to you. Would you guide our hearts? Would you guide our thoughts? Would you shape our hearts to be more aligned with you? In Jesus' name we pray.